think our listeners are used to all kinds of different things. <laughs> They're used to all kinds of noise, like hearing me talk. And me, and and anyone else. So all noise. I guess we're starting. How you been, man? Uh, really good. I, uh, I'm getting rid of Touch of the Crazies from long editing sessions, but uh, I, this is my f- official return to podcasting after I think I took a month off. I'm not sure. Um, but I'm I'm good. How, how about you? Yeah, good. Uh, Video is awesome. Just to just to let you know, I don't want to go on and on about. Yeah, it. I wasn't setting myself up for a compliment. This is about you, and this is about. Yeah, I had, repeat, I had it on repeat like three or four times uh, when I got a chance to watch it that night. Um, yeah, amazing. Thank you. you well, like seeking out you guys seeking out things you could do with these skates that you haven't been able to do. You know, with typical aggressive skates. Um, the flow of all the sections, the music, uh, the angles. Um, Leon being in the video with you guys, great addition. So I loved it. He makes us seem better because he's good. But this is going to seem like I set you up. I called you to get you to compliment me. Nah, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Oh, thank so you. Okay, good. Half hour doing it. <laughs> thank you. That's very nice of you. Um, I hope more people get to see it, but never know. We don't There's, represent any brand. That, move on to the important stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely move on <laughs> to the important stuff. So where do you want to go first? Oh, man. Um, I'm living in a new place. since. Okay, that's right. That's right. Tahoe? Yeah. Where is uh, that for people who don't know? Um, it's – if you go – if you go east of San Francisco, it's um, on the border of California and Nevada. And it's pretty close to Reno, the town where I am, but um, culturally very different to Reno, even though you're only like 45 minutes away. Well, so you have a commute every day? No, no, I live in this little town called Incline Village. Oh, okay. Uh, and I work at the Hyatt, and the hotel's right there, so. Is it, um, do you ever think to yourself that Incline has uh, inline in it? Um, you know, it's weird, when you, when you show up here, it's really obvious why they call it Incline Village. The whole, town, the whole town is on the side of a hill. It it's sounds like, like it's a got huge, a lot of character already. It's like a huge wedge ramp is is what is where the whole town is built. Um, everything I own that has wheels, I need better brakes for. There's uh, there's nowhere flat in the whole town that you can stand or walk or go running or anything like that, except right on the front of the lake. Um, it's awesome. I spend a whole bunch of time like just scouting out hills to bomb and streets to <laughs> streets to skate down. And you're going to be skiing lots then in the winter? Yeah, there's already been a little bit of snow here and there, so this will be the first time I've lived in a town where I can get a season pass and like ski regularly. You know? So I'm really excited about that. Oh, that's so exciting. I got asked today if I ski, and every time I get asked that, I say that I really, really want to. But um, financially, it's just it's a it's a big commitment right now. But I um, yeah, I'm jealous. It's something that I always in the back of my mind, I keep saying I want to do, and I know if I do it and do it often, it would I'd be a happier person. Every every time I'm outside and I'm walking around town, the uh, the the uh, the landscape, the scenery looks like a combination of uh, Rad, the BMX movie, yeah, uh, and Better Off Dead. <laughs> What's better off dead? I should know that. Uh, the the John Cusack skiing one. 
Oh, pay the boys after him the whole movie for two dollars. Shit, I haven't seen that. That was that uh, before. Say anything. We're gonna have to stop the podcast right now. Okay. Yeah, you call me back in a couple of hours. Go watch Better Off Dead. <laughs> I totally believed you there. <laughs> it's that good, hey. <laughs> it's it's like the best B movie from the eighties ever. It, and it's and it is pre say anything or like young young John Cusack. Uh, young, I never really watched say anything, which is weird because I've met a couple of people that are like Lloyd Dobler uh, freaks who think he's like you know Buddha or something, and I don't get it because Better Off Dead was way better. Are they uh, are they girls? In Better Off Dead? No, no the the. Uh the Lloyd Dobler worshippers. Uh, nah, I think they're all dudes. Oh. I've just heard a couple of people go on about him, like he's a, you know, like he's a, a, a you know, a cult movie character or something. And yeah, he is. I think I saw half of it once, and I wasn't getting it. So it's one of the it's one of the girl bibles in my mind. Not 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 as much as. Uh, Dirty Dancing and Grease, and then I guess The Notebook is a modern girl Bible, but that say anything's kind of on the fringes of the girl Bibles. You um, mean they're they're like guy characters that are written for women? Yeah. Okay. I, but Lloyd Dobler might exist, whereas some of the other ones just fuck up a lot of relationships and expectations. I think. I wasn't getting it anyway, but. <laughs> Better Off Dead is a little more slapstick than that. It's a little more, you know, sight gags and cheap laughs. And it really is a B movie. I mean, it's it's not even trying to be taken seriously. So. And it's a ski movie. Yeah. I mean, it's loosely based around skiing, yeah. Is that uh, Hot Tub Time Machine? Was there any nods to Better Off Dead in that movie? Uh, I haven't seen it. So oh, okay. Okay. That made me think, uh, what about... And now, bro, I don't, I don't see every movie that comes out. <laughs> That's good, actually, because there's a lot of shitty ones. Um, <laughs> a lot of the time, there's a lot of stuff that is just going to take really, really, really important time where you could be getting shit done. Yeah, I've um, been busy lately, so maybe that's the big part of it. <clears throat> but, um, oh, before I go into what movies are worth watching, because I watched one last night. I was going to say something about... Oh, what about... Is it Mitchell Goosen? That's his name, right? The the dude from Airborne? Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you feel about him still as a as like an archetype of, uh, of just someone? Like a character in a movie. How do you feel? How is his character aged in your mind? Because I still feel like from all of the popular like uh, New Age spirituality crap, he's kind of modern in the way that... Uh, in the way that he is. What do you think about that, though? Well, I mean, I... I don't know if you read that rant I typed about Airborne a while ago, but, um, I mean, my understanding of him in the in the movie, he's almost like the narrator in that he's not a... He's not a... a he's not a character who's a vehicle for anything in the movie, whereas, you know, Jack is a vehicle for certain ideas... Wiley is a vehicle for certain ideas, and in a lot of ways, Mitchell is just like a like an innocent bystander, you know. And when you follow the plot, his character doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, <laughs> so then, serious. 
So then here's, he a, guy, here's a guy who, who moves to Cincinnati, takes his surfboard with him and forgets his rollerblades. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's true. But the way in which they set the scene and then bring Mitchell the rollerblader into the middle of that, he's like the catalyst for Jack to do what Jack has to do and for Wiley to do what Wiley has to do. And they're more the, the vehicles for certain ideas and it doesn't really matter what happens to Mitchell. I mean, you know you know he's going to win in the end. You know he's going to get the girl in the end, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make any difference. So then... He's not a character? Or could there be an interpretation of the movie where he's not actually a real person? No, I don't really mean that. Because <laughs> that's, inter- <laughs> that's my interpretation of E.T. and people think I'm crazy. Let me try and explain quickly the, the rant that I was going on about. Yeah, because I sampled the um, you don't have to fight the shark to, to fight for the wave. Is that the oh, quote? You stole that? Ah. Oh, I didn't steal that. I sampled that. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the rant that I did, what I was saying was that Wiley represents rollerblading and Jack represents everything that stands between what rollerblading wants to be and stops it from being that, keeps it being what it is. Um, and. I guess in some ways Mitchell represents what rollerblading would want to be, but it's not really going to turn out that way. You know, you're, it's not going to become that. It's not going to become the cool guy. It's not going to become the guy that gets the hot girl, whatever. And this becomes perfectly clear in that scene where Wiley's trying on all the different outfits to impress the, the girl, the, the blind date that he's got. Yeah. It becomes obvious that he wants this image and he wants this this persona that he doesn't think he already has. And Mitchell's trying to tell him, like, just be yourself. Just go as who you are and it'll all work out. And it does. He gets his own girl at the end and, you know, he's going to get taken care of. That's made obvious in the movie. And it doesn't matter that she's not, you know, the hot chick that Mitchell gets because he still has himself a girlfriend. He still gets laid. But um, I like that part in the movie as well where uh, uh, Mitchell has the dream because that kind of plays in well with it. Him realizing that not only does he not have to fight Jack, he doesn't have to fight this this enemy figure that represents what's standing between him and what he wants. He doesn't need to fight that to get what he wants. And Wiley kind of realizes the same thing, you know, because there's that moment in the film where he can fight Jack and he doesn't and Wiley's really angry like oh you could afford anything but Mitchell ends up finding a way to show Wiley like you know you can be who you want to be and you can get what you want to get and you don't you don't need to have an enemy figure that needs confronting you don't need to go to war with anyone or anything and Wiley goes in the race too right yeah it's kind of a joke though but he does yeah. I mean, he participates, yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Where was that rant originally? Do you still have that? Uh, it was probably something I put up on BMAG at some point. Damn. I I wonder... <laughs> I think I went through and copied... I might have a file somewhere. I copied and pasted like everything I ever posted on there <laughs> in a document. 
somewhere just so I can go back and refer to it. Uh, some of it ages well, some of it not so much. It would be great if BMAG had a function like that where you could like literally just download your history, like Google Dashboard, so that I could delete it at the same time <laughs> as I download it. <laughs> you could probably still get yours. if Can't you? Or does it get deleted up to a certain point? I, I went through and deleted a lot of it myself up to a certain point. But, oh, you uh, did? Did you say? Did you come uh, across any good stuff and then save it, or did you kind of compile that in a more? There's a lot of lurkers on BMAG that don't really understand, like what's going on on there. So they took a whole bunch of stuff way too literally and way too seriously. And these are people who are like friends of mine and who know me personally and just won't look me in the eye anymore. So. Oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> That, well, uh, Frank had a good point where it would be like people listening to Eminem and thinking like that he, you know, killed his mother and raped his daughter and stuff like that. And yeah, get it. I I post like um, I'm getting the lay of the land, you know. <laughs> I'll be uh, you know, sitting at the office job, and I post stuff on on Facebook to help pass the time. And you know what I was saying, like podcasts are great, keeps you connected to what you're into even while you're working. So Facebook, I I post things and sometimes. People interpret the tongue-in-cheekness sometimes, or I post things just purposely to get a rise, and uh, I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't go over well, but I have too much fun with it, so it's going to keep going. No, don't stop. It's, it's <laughs> fun. Uh, I remember you uh, asking, you know, does rollerblading have a sense of humor? And um, cold silence, <laughs> which answered the question better than any literal answer ever. No, that <laughs> That one actually got some replies, but it was uh, it was when I posted about uh, me growing up on aggressive skating 101, and I posted cult characteristics 101, and <laughs> I thought that it was like one of the smarter things I've ever posted on there. <laughs> Nobody posted anything. I think it was because when you click on the link, it looks really daunting and like squashed all the text. But um, I, I yeah, I had that realization, and I messaged you that day that I I've been obsessed with like movies about cults and documentaries for a really long time and then i realized uh -huh. why i relate to it so much is because I, I was in one technically i'm still kind of like getting over it i have flashbacks and things <laughs> like that but yeah i was in one i, I want to do an article about it where it's i take those and post pictures kind of like representing my experience of being in the cult but yeah <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought more people would uh, would maybe have something to say with it, about it, but uh, maybe I look too deep into it. But I honestly believe that it's that I was in a cult. I don't know. Do you think about that at all? I mean, obviously, you guys have a sense of humor about rollerblading. Yeah. Uh, I, well, it's really important. You've, you've reached a point where you're you're free of the rules. Yes. You're free to break the rules. So it makes all the difference. It does. I'm still surprised that there's uh, there should be in theory more people doing it, but it's not. Um, there's no. I'm trying to think. What I was trying to say about like the flavor of the month thing, uh -huh. um, that it seems like rollerblading style now is is 
very specific and standard, and I don't think it's going to change a lot for a long time. I, I, I feel like how Leon said there's Group A and Group B, um, and then there's specific skate companies that fit into Group A and Group B. B, I think was razors and USD or something like that with some people that can switch back and forth um, but especially with like the uh, Shredweiser, Haitian Meg, Volo 5 and Strange Creatures I feel like that is rollerblading and rollerblading style to like a, a massive amount of people who are involved in it and that is going to be the standard for a long time. I don't know. I could be wrong. But I, I just feel like... I mean, I understand companies trying to brand themselves and trying to create an image for themselves that separates them from the other companies. Perfectly understood. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really going to call out any skaters or any particular groups because they obviously all are very passionate about the skating they do and the way they present it. And the effort they're putting in into making their skating look a certain way and making it be a certain way is incredible. But, yeah, I do know what you mean. There, there tend to be, let's say, a, a few different styles that are focused on and they're refined and they're concentrated and the, the standards that you need to adhere to if you're part of that community or part of that image uh, that's being branded yeah it's pretty strict it's very strict and, i mean i'm nowhere i'm nowhere near it anymore but i've heard talk from a few skaters regarding you know certain companies certain guys behind the camera who really really need it to be a certain way and all sorts of things that are incredible tricks and incredible clips become throwaways because they don't fit the image and that's been going on for a long time oh yeah um, definitely I, mean, I remember i remember shane coburn saying to me that if if it weren't that way if if the the image and the branding didn't have to be so strict that you know that bj bernhardt would be like the number one pro skater in the world in the universe because bj bernhardt would just go out and murder anything on a pair of skates. He still does. Well, in the shock video, he did. No one will session street with that guy because they won't skate the spots that he would skate. <laughs> it, but that that would be a good thing but in you, my mind. You put, you put BJ Bernhardt on mind game and you give him a full section in the video and people are going to go berserk because he's like not following the rules. Or oh, fuck. How awesome would that have been? Or he's got quote-unquote bad style or something, whatever the fuck that means. I don't He's know got what... the craziest style ever. It's amazing. Oh. I always pop out of my head every time you're watching a, a guy like that do something on skates. And yet, I understand what Shane was saying. There are certain rules that Shane didn't have the power to change, and BJ doesn't skate by those rules. So, you know, it doesn't sell. Oh, man. Good thing there's people like Drew Backrack to give him sections, or there, there was. Life Plus was amazing. Amazing. It really was. I, those guys deserve a lot of credit for. I wonder how much debt altogether, if you like added up the financials of trying to do that. Because I, I don't think any of them worked regular jobs while they did that project. <laughs> Unless I'm mistaken. I don't know. 
It's yeah. it's amazing to think of how many people just put 100% of everything into rollerblading, expecting some kind of return. Yeah, especially at that time, you know, like when Senate, it was probably like 98, 99 when Senate was kind of on the on the downward spiral. And yeah, I think a lot of us expected that if we did similar things, that the returns and the rewards would be similar. And yeah, a lot of people, you know, bet the house around that time on uh, on what they wanted to do in rollerblading. But I mean, nothing, no no company, no venture was ever going to be like Senate. Was ever going to be like, you know, Tribe. No, well, I fully believed it too, and that's. Uh... I remember even like my family having an intervention with me at one point <laughs> about about my cult involvement. There was one there was one thing when I was reading the uh, the list where it's like you uh, you ditch important like family events or I can't remember exactly what it was, but it hit so close to home. I remember like missing a couple uh, funerals because I went on skating trips to like film for a video. And I don't know if I like completely regret it, but it is like I was that deep. I mean, I still am in some ways not in the the religion side of it, but how much I love skating, that's yeah, still there. Yeah. But um, yeah, my my sister and my dad on different occasions had to uh, have skating interventions for me because the way that I talked about like making videos and and going on trips and all that stuff, like I I fully believed. <laughs> that there, you know, like Life Plus, right? That there was going to be returns in the future. I didn't know in what way, but even if I was just like, yeah, we make a video and then uh, make money off of that one to make the next one, you know. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm talking still, about my early 20s, pretty much. But I still have a hard time not like calling in sick if there's skate contests or skate events going on. And you know, and I want to be there, and I don't have the day off. But yeah. I lost, I lost way too many jobs doing that when I was young. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta look more at the at the long haul. Oh yeah, sure. But um, I, before we move on, I wanted to make it clear that I don't, I don't want to make out like there's been no reward in me being a rollerblader for twenty plus years. You know, just because. Just because metric didn't work out like like Senate did or like Medium did or whatever, um, you know, I I love the way that I've spent these years and the person that I am is because of rollerblading and because of the experiences that I've had and the people that I've met, you know, on skates and in my travels, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. You know, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be an engineer or a rock star or you know any other thing rather than having spent the last 20 years rollerblading like I have. I have. But, we certainly, but we certainly are at a point where you're looking at your own individual legacy and your your combined legacy within the community of rollerblading and thinking, you know, I really hope, I really wish and hope that I can make something of my experiences and what I've learned. And it's not so much give back as just, have something, have something to be proud of that you've done in that time. Absolutely, I agree with you on that. I, uh, I mean, I would have ended up playing hockey for you know semi-professional, and then I always say I would have 
rolled my truck and got addicted to coke and got some girls pregnant or something like that. Not that every hockey player does that, but um, in Canada, there's a hard-ass lifestyle that comes with playing WHL. So I don't know. I just feel it's like it's being an engineer in Brisbane. Yeah. Oh, really? Coke, hookers, <laughs> yards, mate. Rolling trucks. I saw it coming and I, I walked away. Well, you know, rolling Subarus. Oh, yeah, that too. That too. I think. Uh, um, I still <laughs> <laughs> rolling Subarus. I still have to go to Australia. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, uh, I look back at like I. People often call me out for sounding angry about rollerblading and jaded i'm not i'm angry about like the culture side of it kind of that i grew up on Uh, there's some amazing stuff through that but rollerblading um the feel of it and discovering making videos and some of the videos that i experienced growing up it got me in touch with my more like artist side and then that's kind of uh i'm coming to a conclusion that i hate that word artist or art or anything like that but that's kind of what i guess i always wanted to try and do with skating and videos um but there was too much of a structure that i grew up on so the frustration just comes from my own like that i i wish i would have uh broke more rules earlier on but i don't think in your early 20s there's still so much influence and stuff that you're into i don't know that was a bunch of different topics at the same time but Hopefully there's something there. Things happened really quickly in rollerblading in the 90s. Like, compared to the rate at which things are changing now in rollerblading, things were changing so rapidly and so quickly in the 90s. And I think we were all swept up in the hype of how quickly it was growing and how quickly it was changing and how quickly it was evolving even if that evolution was at a very kind of um, early stage, you know? I mean, looking back, it seems like, you know, progressing from, you know, Souls to Mizus to Topside Tricks to Royales, you know, it really doesn't seem like that much of a progression. But at the time, it was really mind-blowing how you could open a new Daily Bread or watch a new VG and see, like, a half a dozen tricks you'd never seen before and you hadn't even had the chance to think of yet. Yeah. So I think a lot of people got caught up and swept up in that. And I know I did because looking back on the the uh, you know, the twenty year span of skating, aggressive skating since I've been doing it, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have become just an aggressive skater. I probably would have kept doing all the other stuff at the same time. You know, I wouldn't have given up on having a pair of skates with flat 72s. I wouldn't have given up on having a hockey stick. I wouldn't have given up on riding a BMX bike on occasions. And now that I'm at a point in my life where I can do all that stuff and do a, a wider range of activities than just going out trying to find, you know, jump ramps and handrails and stuff, uh, um, even that part of it's become so much more enjoyable. I totally agree with that. I got swept up in it for sure. And you can see you can see yourself and what you're doing on aggressive skates from a different angle than always being on the skates and always looking down the barrel of, you know, a set of stairs or a handrail or uh, I've got to make sure this 
this trick gets laced for the video or whatever. <laughs> uh, uh, that uh, that idea is really interesting. It's that it's slowly coming back around with <laughs> with roller hockey and power blading, and I don't know. You see some people being more open to other activities, but I don't know. There's still yeah. some some more close-mindedness. Say, I'd say there's about 20% of rollerbladers that are really ready for it. They might not they might not know how to make it happen themselves, but when it happens, they're on board. About 20%. Absolutely. Now, here's, but- the thing, though. here's the thing, though. I don't think they're going to change the other 60 or 80% in the slightest. Oh, and I don't think there's any structures in place... What's that? I don't think that, that the remaining rollerbladers that aren't ready to change, I don't know that they're going to get inspired to change by the 20% that do. No, absolutely they're, not. They're, they're going to stick with the Senate shirts. They're going to stick with the, you know, giving the finger to the world and, uh, you know, thinking that their P rally is badass. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's kind of what I said that I think. Uh, rollerblading how I knew it is very specific and has defined itself and will never change and I don't think there's any structures in place for that 20% to get any bigger I liked what Kevin Dowling said in the one podcast about like the that like the inline like there's no rollerblading website that has just everything on it (laughs) isn't that kind of weird (laughs) there's Plenty of rollerblading websites that have everything but aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then like, um, uh, I remember talking to us the first time, the first time I ever saw like really good slalom skating was in person. We in person. We were in Amsterdam and we were filming for Better Than Baseball it would have been, and uh, and I remember we were stoned and we saw this dude do cones in the park and it was so fucking mind-blowing that we couldn't even figure out like how you could you know in the first time you see a unity grind and you're like how do you even put your feet like that it was like that and i remember talking to him that there was like aggressive skaters had come to do a demo Uh, it was like solomon vinnie minton or whatever but the way he was talking about it was he was so separate from it that he he was talking like aggressive skaters were so close-minded to what he does that there was this I don't know this weird separation in the way he was talking about aggressive skaters and how close-minded they were because they were so close-minded towards him and it was the most fucked up thing I remember hearing that because I was blown away in person seeing this I hadn't put two and two together that it's like wow you could probably combine some of that with like aggressive skating and you might be able to get something really interesting and new but I mean that was 2005 or six. Anyways, that was crazy, I remember. That's exactly why there's no website that has all disciplines of rollerblading on it, including aggressive. Because aggressive is so elitist that when you combine it with those other disciplines, it's just going to hate on all of them. It's yeah. just going to hate on all of them and tell them that they're all fags and tell them that we're way better than them because they can't do a soul grind. And... Um, the organizers who have brought all these disciplines together say, well, the easiest way to solve the problem here is just to get rid of that one. 
Oh, I do have I faith. I, I, hey, I have faith that it, that it might, it might grow up, but I don't know. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of rollerblading growing up, I should, I should put in a disclaimer. I know these usually come at the start of the videos and the start of the podcasts, but I'm going to throw it in halfway. Um, if you're listening to this and you're a teenager, you don't need to listen any further. Everything that you're doing on rollerblades right now as a 16, 17, 19-year-old is totally cool and you're cool and have at it. Go have a ball, you know, do whatever you want, be a kid, you know, it's, it's, it's all you. That's good advice. This podcast really applies to the dudes who are in their 20s and maybe even their 30s and are still acting like a teenager on rollerblades. You guys can keep listening, and uh, if you if you get angry and you get frustrated, and I'm I'm challenging your your idea of, of what's cool and what's okay and what's not okay, then take a good look in the mirror and ask yourself what's going on because this is this is what we're here for. We're here to change it. We're here to make it something something greater or something more than it's already been, and I just see that happening at a very, very slow pace. I think that it's because a lot of us probably haven't grown up all that much. Hey, I got to tell you, relating to that, the first time I... But I'm working on it. What's that? (laughs) Working on what? I missed that. The growing not being a, not being a teenager on skates anymore. Oh, man. I have, I think I have years of, I need to go to therapy for it. I, what I just, the, the statement I just made, don't think that I'm presenting myself as like a real man of rollerblading or anything like, <laughs> I'm still working it out myself, but at least I realize that's the, that's the goal. That's the aim. I, I was, the first, <laughs> the first time I went rec skating, like in my, 20s a long distance like four kilometers or something <laughs> i used my aggressive skates that was how my allegiance was so strong that i thought by by using my uh cuffless rims yeah, thou like, shalt not use big wheels <laughs> hey well i didn't i didn't have the option you know maybe i could still rep the boot and then have like bigger wheel frames so that's you know there's the stepping stones now i didn't even have that option i did 55 millimeter wheels 4k shitty asphalt like not even smooth pavement and i think like every stride i would i don't even i don't even want to think about it sacrilege bro it's it's disheartening and then uh haven't you seen the stone tablets that got handed down to arlo (laughs) thou shalt not use big wheels that was yeah Absolutely. That was uh Yeah, that was a huge one. That's that's up there on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> or is it ten? I don't know. Did you say the ten well, commandments? Well number one is thou shalt always wear long pants. <laughs> oh yes. Our number short two is thou shalt not wear pads. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a big I, one. I forget the rest anyway. It's been a while. That's uh <laughs> that's a big one though. That's a big one. I think, did I bring up where uh, he wrote that, Arlo wrote that article about, um, I think it was an article about Mizu's? Yeah, yeah, I remember the one. Yeah. 
That's Danny Brett, and there was like a two-page spread and a picture of him doing a soul on like a curved rail. Yeah, it was. Um, and he was talking about how he couldn't relate to Mizu's and Unity's from his uh, skateboarding background. He couldn't see them as stylish. And but, that is, those are he, still. He was learning how to do that. Like he had reached the point where he was learning how to do that. I, I mean, I think there was a Unity, or there may have been Unities in the new Volo video, but I'm not sure. I think Todd may have written down a list of like, or maybe he talked about it. There's like very specific things that just you wouldn't have seen in that video that are like it's not allowed. Well, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. Talk um, me to, oh, if, go ahead. If you if you think about all the possible grind stances that 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 are possible, there's probably only a dozen that are in vogue at any one time. And you open up a video and you see those dozen over and over again and you don't see the others. You, just done oh man i soyels i love them are those not those aren't are they right now um i feel like i may I have seen one just recently i don't think it doesn't a soyel has such timeless style when it's done right yeah that anyone can throw down a soyel whenever they want and they're still going to be cool you know what i mean oh it was in that um the halfy blade edit versus chris farmer it's not like doing an alley oop Mizu and and you know. I still fucking love that trick. <laughs> alley oop Mizu's shit. It's not like it's not like doing like a front royale and coming off forwards, you know. Hey, backslide to forward, what? hot right now. Anyone catches you on video doing that trick, you are off the team. What royale to forwards? <laughs> Have you seen though? Backslide to forwards is a thing right now. Nice. You're on the team if you do backslide forwards. Seriously, that's a hard trick. Is it? To make look good? No, it's a hard trick to do. Backslide to forwards? Because of where your weight is. Oh, okay. That's why it's a thing. Yep. That's true. What about... um? Oh, Todd made a really good point the other day. He was like... I think the reason not a lot of people do unities... Because I was talking about how much I would love to see Julio do a unity... Um, Todd said the skates aren't as good for unities, and he was right. It's oh really? Yeah, I don't know. Do you? You probably don't do unities that often, do you? Well, I mean, I, I can if if I'm if I'm gonna grind something that I'm not sure whether it's too slippery or not to Royale or Unity at first. But that's that's just because I'm old school. Like you can't even you can't compare the the way that I do grinds to the way that rollerbladers today do grinds. One plus, are you in the... Uh, like I'm, I'm old school Royale guy. You know, you put me on a pair of like any skates made since Fifth Elements and I ain't doing shifties in those skates. Oh man, I could not believe... Uh, when this I'd... is why I love K2s and I love Solomons and I love like the, the pre-UFS remedies and stuff. Because I know I can go somewhere where there are other rollerbladers and still be able to do shifties and not fall on my ass all the time. <laughs> I was so surprised when I put on a fair pair of fatty pros this summer and and tried to royale actually how far you have to bend bend that ankle or not even bend the ankle but knees and like how much yeah it's boned over that it's a it's a big distance compared to modern skates like it's a and, lot. 
I never really learned how to do that, to be honest. Uh, once skates were made that slid for torques and for royales, pretty much the same. Uh, I mean, I couldn't do royales in them. And I don't know if it's couldn't as much as it is just didn't really want to. I mean, most people put in the effort and learned how to do it, and I just wanted to do other stuff in skates, so it wasn't worth the effort. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the same for everyone, you know. People would always say, like, Sesamora couldn't grind. Well, yeah, he could. He just didn't want to spend any time doing it. And I understand that most of the top, you know, street skaters, uh, when they get on a vert ramp, actually pick it up really quickly and they're really good at it, but they just don't care about it, you know. Yeah. Like, over the years, I've had so many people come up to me and say, oh, you know, uh, you know, my boy, blah, 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 he's, he's so good on vert, no one knows. And I'm like, well... Yeah, I'm sure he can be. I mean, he's a crazy good street skater. I'm sure he's. I'm sure he could kill Vert. You know, Vert's not that hard, but he probably just doesn't want to skate it. Hey, Vert is hard. For this guy no, talking to you right here, Vert is hard. I would celebrate. Yeah. I would drop into the ramp, even if I slid a little bit. I would take my skates off and go have a beer and celebrate. The, the do's and the do nots are very different to street skating, but it's not hard. It's it's easy. Can you uh, can you hand plant on vert? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. It's weird, man. And like here in the U.S., it's like the one trick that I could always pull out of the bag and like impress whoever was there because the way that aggressive skating evolved in the U.S., no one learned how to do inverts. Is it well? It's, <laughs> it's does it. I actually had, I'm going to juice myself up for a moment because this is a great story. I actually had Dustin Latimer come up to me at one of the uh, the Revolution Thursday night skates after I'd like done an invert and come in forwards. And he was like, I don't know how to do that trick. I never learned how to do that trick. Really? I'm like, fuck yeah, that's one for me and like <laughs> a thousand for him. In my mind, it's like, how very Australian rollerblader of you to be able to know how to do inverts. Is that part of like... Australian rollerblading culture or something? Because I feel like all of the big names from Australia could do good inverts. Well, it's really weird. Like, um, I grew up in Brisbane, in Queensland. Yeah. And uh, despite a couple of really amazing old school guys, uh, Reese and Grant on vert, despite those guys, Toby Heslop was like the only guy who could skate vert. Really? In, uh, in Queensland. So it was, it was an and odd thing then. I never really like got to session with Toby Heslop. He just wasn't like someone who was, you know, in my crew or someone who I could go on skate vert with. You know, someone who I could like call up and be like, "Hey, man, let's go skate vert." Um, it wasn't until I moved down to Sydney in '98 that, uh, that I started skating vert, like seriously with other with other dudes, and um, and. It just happened. Those dudes were like, you know, Sessa Moore and Matt Salerno and Ian Smith and uh, all of them were not only insanely good vert skaters, but they were very, very encouraging of me, you know, learning the do's and do nots and trying to trying to come up, so to speak, with vert. And it didn't last very long, but it lasted long enough that I can see that I got an advantage there that not only most Australians, but pretty much all Americans didn't get. You know, they never really got. They never really got introduced to vert, how to do it, and how to make it work, and how not to die. Yeah, 
And does that translate really well into most skate park designs? Like in terms of how how easy it is for you to get used to any um, skate park that you roll up to? or Big transition, yes. But those parks are pretty rare in the U.S. these days. Like when I, when I first came here and I got to travel around a little bit and, you know, I got to spend a lot of time at Woodward and go to like a bunch of ASA amateur contests, there were just huge trannies everywhere. That was, it was, I don't want to say it was all I skated, but I didn't have any interest in street at that time. You know, you would go out with a crew to skate street and I just wouldn't. I just didn't care less, you know. There were stairs and handrails back in Brisbane, so it didn't matter. But getting to the events or getting to the places and skating these huge transition courses was it was a dream come true for me, you know. And vert skating definitely tr- uh, translates very well into skating big transitions, big parks. But with all the public parks that there are around these days, you know, a bunch of them are just two foot, three foot, four foot, wedge parks you know and like buckled trannies where the coping sticks out and stuff like that so yeah that's true i don't know that it does me any good there i'm not really interested in skating that stuff very much anyway yeah well one thing i was thinking of was uh you know who i didn't like as a skater but now that i go through old daily breads um he was way too far ahead of his time and (laughs) Scott Crawford. Did I already bring that up one time? I don't think so, but I, I agree with you. Scott like Scott was one of the first guys that I saw on skates that really blew my mind as far as what was possible. Him and all the uh, all the Manly Blades team dudes or whatever it was called, Ramp Attack or something or other. Him and all them were up at uh, up in Brisbane at uh, South Bank doing a demo this was probably like i'm gonna say 92 yeah i I haven't been on skates very long and um they had this uh you know six foot mini ramp on a on a flatbed trailer set up there and him and john pollard and a couple of the other uh like manly dudes northern beaches northern beaches dudes were um were sessioning it and I was just blown away. And then they went out and street skated with us, with all the Brisbane guys, uh, after, you know, doing the demo. And again, just blown away by what these guys were doing. So that's one advantage that that Scott has is that he is like the OG's OG. You know, he's way, way back. He did everything. And uh... some of the old Australian videos, man, I wish they were on YouTube or Vimeo or something because... Like him and John Pollard and a couple of those other guys were, they were kind of the Australian version of, you know, Dave Colash and the, uh, uh, and his crew. Where were they from? Nebraska. uh, Yeah. Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah. Guys who were like out in left field, so to speak, compared to, you know, Chris Edwards and Tom Fry and whoever else, but just doing the most amazing things and actually creating the tricks, you know, actually inventing the tricks. And I think there's probably a lot of stuff that, you know, American guys or European guys might get credit for inventing that that John Pollard, at least, was already doing, was doing first. And I remember being younger and not liking his style in videos because it wasn't the norm. And then I, I go back now and see his stuff and I'm like, fuck, he was so far ahead of his time. 
And a lot of his shit is really, like, a lot of his photos in Daily Bread, really, really timeless. Like, like uh, just, I don't know, the style of the tricks and the way that he looks. He just looked like he could be a pro skater in any time. Actually, not currently. He wouldn't, he wouldn't fit into the current thing. But he reminds me of, you know, there's, like, those pro skier guys who who are like in their 30s or something and it doesn't matter what they do it's just all always good i don't know <laughs> that's kind of what it reminds me of like what he could have been i don't know if k2 still had a team he would be like still <laughs> he would still be like an og on the team possibly or something like that i don't know oh man <laughs> what <laughs> if k2 hadn't fallen off the deep end yeah it's uh now that I watch more skiing videos, I really, really appreciated uh, the, their team structure. And when I look back at old Daily Breads, that that it it who they picked for their skating team back then totally fit with their like company image for other sports, yeah, and things like that. Uh, and it and like guess... amazing picks. Like yeah. whoever was picking the dudes to be on the team and the ads and the pictures and everything. Yep. just fucking amazing like um I, I think a lot of that a lot of that was probably matt lacrosse and tom heiser where's where's matt lacrosse now uh no idea um and he was a skater um or was he just an action sports guy who knew like just had a sense for what was good because remember he's the guy who tried to bmx the gap or whatever in it was Kind of a bit before my time here in the U.S., yeah. so I don't really know. I I, I don't know. Um, but but as far as influence and the direction of you know the, the brand and the image and the team, I I would assume that he he and Tom Heiser were pretty much driving forces. Yeah, I would love to get Mr. Heiser on the the podcast for all of that nerdy stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the Watching, yeah, watching ski videos recently. You didn't watch that mutiny one yet, did you? Nah, I haven't. I, I saw the preview and it wasn't really doing it for me. It's full on like street hammers, pretty much. Like, um, but the way the video is put together is amazing. It was one of the highlights of my viewing experience this year. But um, it made oh, so much the, sense. Uh, What's I went and saw the, the level one premiere of their latest video. Oh, I was going to watch that. What's that one called again? Uh, Partly Cloudy. Oh, okay, yeah. I saw that one. See, I had, I had the choice. And I went to the uh, same documentary. Oh, shit, which I watched last night, so we, we could end up talking a long time about that. <laughs> but one point, again, that I think I brought up so many times before we talk about that level one is uh, you just realize that why people like Pat Lennon were on K2 as well. Yeah. Like, that... I watched this mutiny, like this street hammers thing, and then I went to like check out the the skis website, and it's like they're all um, like that whole crew is K two, like K two yeah. supports that that whole crew to do that stuff, and it, it's so weird to think of that whole side of skating is gone because I and it's funny, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Pat Lennon because. I know that Pat Lennon's got a reputation of being kind of a guy who's the alternative to, you know, the 
the standard or, you know, one of the flavors of the month guys who follows the rules and all the rest. I know that Pat Lemon's considered the exception to those guys, but, you know, 4 by 4 went a long way to presenting him as that guy, whereas if you go back to K2, I mean, there are guys like BJ Campbell, guys like Randy Marino. They were insanely talented on skates, and they just didn't care at all about, like, you know, the standard. They didn't care at all about, oh, I need to learn such and such tricks before my run or anything like that. But if you spent any time around those guys and saw what they were capable of on a pair of skates, I mean, it blew your mind. Um, Randy Marino, I think he was the first one that did that loop. When yep. they, yeah, he when was. They pulled it out of the ASA contest. I posted that ad on our on our Facebook at, like to bring it back to uh, how fucking amazing their ads were. It I, was I hope a, I've, what's that? I hope I've made this enough in things that I've said before. Anytime there's a new trick or a new stunt or a new style, the first guy to do it, what he did is 10 times harder than the second guy to do it. Oh, Once yeah. Rangino had gone through the loop, it was so much easier for all those other guys to be like, well, fuck it, I'll do it. But to be the guy who does it first, man, is insane. And, you know, to cons- to think of the crowd and the community of pro skaters that he was amongst and for him to be the dude that went and pulled it first, that's, you know, a great description of the kind of skater that he was. Incredibly talented, but not the guy who's going to get the cover, not the guy who's going to get the pro model, you know? That is a, such a fucked up part of skating history in retrospect. That, but, but K2 could see through that, and they had guys like him on the team. Oh, Daily, Daily Bread had also had yeah. a little bit, like... They they gave Scott Crawford and Sean Robertson yeah. like they they had a vision too. I I think Angie was probably the driving force behind that. She being one of like the original maybe half a dozen people that really got you know aggressive skating so to speak off the ground you know on wheels. She could see that the 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 character that people had and knowing them personally you could see who was who was going to fold under pressure and who was going to rise and they would they would support the people who you know, who were going to rise definitely and there's uh, can you name anybody off the top of your head that you've seen whether it's like a someone who's really good at park in an edit or something anybody who relates to that what we were talking about like someone who would have been on the old school k2 team or something like is there anybody that that you recently yeah um i think i've mentioned dustin werbeski before um i kind of see him in the same vein as uh maybe like eric burke or um you know someone who is incredibly talented and yet they're going to go and find their own way and their own tricks and their own their own way of like seeing a spot and deciding what to do on it. It didn't and hurt that what's oh, cool keep going. what's not cool isn't really going to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good call. That's a really good call. It didn't hurt that his mentor was Richie so Eisler as well. Like, but, you see the guy skating in like bohemian gear all the time, you know. And I don't mean like 
like hipster bohemian beer. I mean, like he obviously wants to dress that way. He's not he's not doing it for a laugh or anything like that. Yeah. So it doesn't matter to him that people are going to be like, "Dude, you're wearing suspenders. What? What's the deal?" It doesn't matter to him, you know. Dude, you're skating in like a tuxedo. You're skating in a vest. Oh yeah. <laughs> And, yeah. and you see that come out in his skating as well, regardless of the clothes, because I don't care at all about the clothes. You see that the way that he sees the landscape and lines up the tricks that he wants to do and the enjoyment that he gets from skating, you can see that, you know, the rule book is out the window. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't even know there is one. He doesn't care. He was that way from the very beginning too. And part of it, like he was he learned from Richie and the way Richie is able to break down like learning skating still blows me away. Like how much better he was from a technical standpoint. So I don't know if Dustin got some pointers, but he's been that way the entire time since he'd started skating. You know, it's weird. I think, I think that the way that Richie skates, he still considers the rule book and yet he can kind of take it to the next level, you know? Yeah. Dustin's like, Rule book. I don't need no stinking rule book. Get that. Get that out of here. I'm just gonna skate. That's why those two are a great combo. Yeah, I agree. Making everything. Stuff. Everything they've put out or everything they've produced together, loved every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. I want While there to be the more. Subject, oh yeah. Subject. I've got to drop Chris Nyma's name because that guy's a legend. <laughs> Seriously, anyone listening to this who doesn't know who Chris Nyma is, you need to go and find some edits. You need to go and watch that guy on skates. It's <laughs> inspiring thing ever. I, I hope he, I really wanted him to see the new video. I don't know if he's watched it yet, but um, I was hoping he would. Always his his insights into things are I love hearing. His and actually, after you watch edits, listen to the podcast with him. You could take so many notes based <laughs> off of the Chris Nima podcast. Like drink a lot of coffee and listen to that podcast because he's a. Uh, he was one of the first people that also um, he took like his passion for skating and just started getting into dancing and and broke out into other things and and uh, he was the first person to kind of remind me of like you can take this the love of this one thing and put it into anything else and be really good at that too and now he's really coming into his own with uh, the quad stuff yeah yeah I've seen apparently he's killing it on them too like um 720s out of bowls and like he can go to any skate park and rock it pretty well and that's kind of relates to what you were saying that you know Dustin Latimer is good at that too like just anything with wheels there's people who are just natural natural talent yeah there's like there's like a part of your character or a part of your soul that you've unlocked by having the skates on your feet and yet you still kind of realize that the real gold is it's in your soul and it's not in the skates you can find other ways to to take it further. Oh, how good of a transition is that into the McConkie film then? <laughs> I I tell you, man, it was uh, it was a really it was a really inspiring experience. I'm probably going to get a little bit choked up just talking about it. I so. well, I cried. I think I I got welled up like once and definitely. Uh, well, okay, I cried one and a half times, and I don't very easily. I think, um, I think the the Christian Hussoy documentary 
That one had uh-huh. some moments. Did you watch that one, Rising Sun? I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. No, I'll have to get a hold of it. Um, that one's really good. I recommend that. But I'm, I mean, oh man, I, I just, uh, oh, and um, on that note too, before we go into that, the Brandon Negretti thing was absolute. I mean, I watched the McConkie documentary and then heard about the Brandon Negretti thing, and just, I've been, uh, I don't know, made me think about life way too much today. Yeah, trying to get stuff done, but um, that yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't well, even know what to say about that. I mean, but, the, yeah, the fact the fact that it's just happened and that I don't know him personally, I don't really want to talk too much about it because the people that do know him are still dealing with it. So yeah, um, I had to yeah, I just had to say that because I yeah when uh. When things like that, watching a documentary and seeing how it affects the people in the person's life. Uh, one note I just want to say is uh, we're all really lucky that uh, that he gave that much time to skating. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, that's the one thing it's... I thought of is that we're really fucking lucky because he was going to retire after making I can't remember what video, and he ended up making two or three more because, like many of us. He got bit by the bug and just <laughs> couldn't. <laughs> we just can't. We just can't let go. We we just keep making stuff, and we're lucky because of it. So, anyways, the McConkie um, documentary. Yeah, I I welled up a bunch of times. So you watched it with. Um, yeah, well, I I was seeing the the premiere at School Valley and School. Holy Valley shit! Is- really? That's where you were. Wow. It, it's his home, you know, it's his house. And I mean, there were people standing, you know, three feet, four feet away from me, just sobbing through, through some of the sections. These are all people that knew him like a little brother. And, uh, I, it's just, it's hard for me to explain I, just, just being in the presence of the influence he had had on their lives and how much of a loss it was for them. Um, and how uh, how special a person he must have been, despite despite the skis and despite the jumps and the tricks. I um, because I knew just a little bit about him going in, but I had no idea um how how important he was in the sport of skiing and how. Um, yeah, well, he's. I didn't realize that he was uh, as old and had been doing it for as long as he had. So when you were hearing about the story of him coming up through skiing, I mean, he was coming up, you know, in the prior generation. So that, all the all the Winter X Games and the free skiers and the stuff that you see in the edits these days, that's kind of like a, a chapter later in the book than the one that, you know, he was uh, writing that he was taking place in. If from a ski history perspective, there were so many fucking cool things that I learned. Uh, the part where they talk about, um, what was it Squaw or what resort was it where everybody would jump off that one cliff? Yeah, yeah, Lover's Leap. That's at Squaw Valley. And they would go off of it like kind of safely and he was the first person to really charge it and yeah. he backflipped it. They would like, like stand on the edge and just acid drop into it. And some of them would ski away and some of them wouldn't. Yeah. And he just like, did the cross country charge up to the edge from like forty feet back 
and just throws a gainer backflip. <laughs> and then the fact that there was a first, or sorry, he would have been second to Scott Schmidt, was like the guru of the resort. Uh-huh, yep. And then there, you could feel that there would have been tension, you know, and they were talking about how you would see tracks like off the the cliffs and stuff uh, some of that like ski culture stuff just was so fucking interesting to me yeah um and then the the rockering thing just blew me away i had no idea about that that he that they described it as um he he put on it was water skis right yeah well he he said or i think his wife said on his behalf that um uh skiing really deep powder has more in common with skiing on water than it does with skiing on, you know, a groomed slope. So Shane's idea was, well, fuck it, give me a set of water skis and, uh, you know, I'll put some ski bindings on it and I'll go, I'll go ski down a mountain. And he knew it was going to work. Like his experience skiing and everything that he had learned in the practice of actually doing this told him that it was the right thing to do. So he literally bought like a pair of water skis, like a pair of, old school you know those dudes who would hit the big wedge jumps yeah and like fly like 60 through the air he bought an old pair of them and ripped the the rubber dealies off and put uh ski bindings on there and they and explained it video as of him just <laughs> <mac and jump. laughs> that video of that is so good because they ever on these skis and showing people like see i told you it works this is it um and i guess k2 uh developed or invented or whatever rocker skis based on him doing that fuck they they explained it that or was it a powder article or something where they said he basically just rail slid down an entire mountain it's, like it was insane to watch because <laughs> there it's one of those moves where no one in the world is going to pat you on the back and be like you got this buddy um i'm with you all the way no one and you know that's worthy of a lot of respect. Like when it when Ed Isabel started uh, the Woodward Camp out in Pennsylvania in 1970, or you know when Matt Hoffman hits the 20-something foot quarter pipe getting pulled by a motorbike, no one in the world is going to pat you on the shoulder and be like, I- "I'm with you. You've got this." <laughs> and he drops in and he does it, and there you go. It's history. You know. And, uh, and oh, I'm getting some echo. When when they cut from um, the traditional ski to the rockered ski, that was amazing. Yeah, yeah. When they compared the two, because I had no idea just from a technical perspective that that's how much of a difference it makes. Yeah. Um, just that one thing. I, I mean, I wish there was more people in rollerblading with with that type of a mad scientist and what? testing it mind like. Uh, Here's, here's a funny thing, and I, I don't mean any disrespect to Shane McConkie by saying this, but here's the funny thing. Uh, watching the movie at Squaw Valley in that community, uh, you know, I'm not a skier, um, so I, I felt like an outsider, and it's natural for me to, to watch something like that and to experience something like that from the perspective of a rollerblader. So... I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking to myself, let me see if I can identify what it is that this guy does or what it is that he doesn't do that separates him from from rollerbladers who, you know, maybe haven't achieved the same following or wouldn't have the same 
uh, legacy? And the answer that I came up with was, it's not anything that he's doing or isn't doing. It's what the culture and the community itself is and isn't doing. And I think that there's plenty of people in rollerblading that have basically walked the same path on skates, you know, that Shane McConkie was doing on skis. Um, you know, Dustin Latimer is one that comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, champion, a lot of his antics, uh, Shane McConkie uh, was reminding me of. And um, uh, I mean, even Chris Edwards, you know, a Absolutely. lot of guys, a lot of these guys went a long way to to being similar characters and doing similar things, but the reception was very different. Actually, I I thought of Chris Edwards a, a few times throughout that, and uh, not that they're directly related, but the spirit of what Chris well, Edwards did. If if you remember Freddie Frinkelmeyer um, from like you know Dead Air and stuff like that, <laughs> Chris Edwards had an alter ego that was making fun of the the attitude or the uh, you know the the motions of being a professional skater and he was satirizing them and I mean McConkie was doing the same thing I'm not I'm not suggesting that either one of them copied the other but it was just a natural thing for someone in their position who you know is idolized or you know uh, canonized for basically you know playing with toys. For, for a paycheck, it, it was natural for them to make fun of it. Yeah. That's what Edwards was doing. He was making fun of the fact that people were giving him paychecks and treating him like a god for putting rollerblade skates on and doing tricks. And the same with Shane McConkey. Like, people, people give me huge paychecks and treat me like I'm, you know, a saint for, uh, for you know, jumping off cliffs naked with skis on. It's... It's oh, the naked nonsense. stuff was so good. <laughs> it's uh, that was one thing. Uh, editing wise, there was some really good stuff footage that they had. That, yeah. That that one scene where um, it was his last run for the 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 mogul contest. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, there's. There's nothing like that in rollerblading at all. Is there... And there's nothing like that in skiing. I mean, he was such... Are there people like that in skiing now? Like, I mean, he still seemed like one of a kind. But although... No. I think I think free skiing probably takes itself a little bit too serious for, for people to do the same in yeah. free skiing and get away with it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of pressure and seriousness. So... And, I mean, it seemed like McConkie's way of dealing with that was to mock it, you know. It seemed like his way of dealing with that was to make fun of it. Like, you can't, you can't take this too seriously, yeah. you know. You've got you to gotta be able to make fun of yourself. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. That's definitely a big difference between, I don't want to say skiing and rollerblading, but it's a difference between what Shane McConkie was doing and what rollerbladers today are doing. Oh yeah, that's uh, I can't you, remember. You guys what... are the exception. You guys don't. You guys don't mind making fun of yourselves and making fun of rollerblading in general. Yeah, uh, the problem is we're not. I, I <laughs> wish people who were really, really, really good at skating would do it because uh, 
our skills are limited, so we can only do so much. I, I just wish uh, that structure was in place and stayed for, for people who are even better on skates to go with it, you know? Did you ever see... Did you ever see Sesamora do a, a vert run where he would do all like the joke grabs, like the dork grabs? No. It was pretty funny. That, another rider for Cape 2. <laughs> I remember I remember seeing him do, this is at Tarrant Point, uh, I remember seeing him do a 720 where in the middle of it, he would do like, like a spread eagle double rocket grab. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! Oh do, wait, I think three sixty on, on the way out. Oh, that sounds so good. I I think I remember him doing like a crotch grab seven twenty or something like that. I so, think there's there's in one if, of those T bone videos. If if his warm up wasn't going quite right, you you could expect him to break out like a whole run of just dork grabs, just to you know break the tension, try and get back into the into the swing of things. Wasn't uh, famously... In general, he took skating really seriously, but he still had, you know, he still had a, uh, a comical side. He still had a joker inside. I have a, <laughs> a, a weird side question. Do you remember him? Was he almost like a point of, of poking fun in like the, the aggressive street skating community? Like he wasn't uh-huh. fully accepted. Well, it's it's just because he was he was out in left field compared to what they were doing. Yeah. But but he didn't mind giving it as well, you know. Like, I think I, I think he probably became uh, a point of ridicule after he was ridiculing street skaters. Oh yeah. And you know that they were pussies and that wearing baggy pants didn't make them a better skater and whatever else. Oh, know? did he say that? Just things like that. Oh I mean, yeah. Was, he was a character. He didn't mind saying to them, like, you know, if you if you if you're gonna be a pro skater, then you need to be able to skate a whole bunch of stuff. You can't just <laughs> I'm putting words in his I'm okay, putting words yeah. into his mouth. Don't worry about it. Um, but weird. He, yeah, he didn't mind he didn't mind giving it to them. And I think I don't think they started it, I think they just started giving it back. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the, the the community that was traveling and competing in the ASA contest, they all got to know each other pretty well. But you know, the guys that would skate just dirt, the guys that would skate just street, they really didn't have a whole lot of common. Yeah, yeah. Whoops. Um, that's a weird thing. And vert is a niche within a niche within a niche now. Yeah, we can we can talk for a while about the fact that vert doesn't have a future. In rollerblading, what about vert in skateboarding? Does it even really have like a? It's not a thing, really. Vert in skateboarding, is it? I think I think vert in skateboarding is different for a couple of reasons. One would be that it's got a much deeper history than in rollerblading. Yeah. And two, the the side stance and the the wheelbase that you have, it actually changes the action of of vert skating. Really? So, yeah. It's hard to describe that until you really experience both, but it's almost like the difference between skating vert on a really narrow vert ramp and then going to skate vert on a vert ramp that's got like eight panels, twelve panels. You can you can carve and you can flow and all of a sudden you're not going straight up the walls all the time. 
and yet on a skateboard you can go straight up the walls because you're already turned 90 degrees and you're already your body's positioned relative to the ramp and relative to the vert itself and the coping itself that the way of controlling it's very very different uh, did you and did you want I still can't work out how rollerbladers do mic twists on vert. I cannot work it out. On a skateboard, it makes perfect sense to me. Not that I've ever done one on a skateboard, but well, the, look, looking at how it's done, I would know how to throw my body into a mic twist on a skateboard. On rollerblades, I, I'm going to land flat on my back on the coping. I've got no idea. Well, and that's why it makes sense that it was done... The mic twist came from a roller skater doing the, the crab stance or whatever it's that's called. That's right. Because it's it's like um, it's like the difference between a 360 and a flat 360 over a spine. If you're a rollerblader and you go and do a 360 over a, an almost vert spine, it's actually a shortcut to start doing them as flat threes. It's easier. It's more controllable. Uh, it works better. So you get out of the habit of doing normal 360s over a steep spine and you start doing flat threes all the time, or at least off-axis threes. Yeah. And I think a mid-twist is kind of the same thing on a skateboard. Doing a 540 and keeping it on axis, on vert, on a skateboard, actually works out to be a harder trick than doing a mid-twist. Yeah, because it's, it's really a short, thought about it that way. It's more controllable for them to just do a mid-twist. I don't even... Oh, man. I imagine, like, on rollerblades, just, like, heels clicking against the coping and just falling straight onto your back. And was it... Edwards was the first to do McTwist, right, on rollerblades? Uh, I would assume so, but some of the Europeans might have been doing them. Oh, that's right. There would have been some quad skaters like that... Holgren and Raphael Sandoz, they would have been doing all sorts of stuff that we don't really know about because it just wasn't being covered at that time. How far ahead was that guy? I'll tell you who else was doing uh, Mick Twists really early. Uh, vert skater in Melbourne called Joe Jones. Really? Probably seen a clip or two of him in some really old videos like the bottom line or something like that. Was he an older dude? Yeah. Is he the guy... Uh... Probably had five or ten years on Tom Fry, you know. He was, yeah, he was an older dude. Was there's a there's a shot of someone on a vert ramp in one of the old T-bone videos, uh, and there's like a big bug on his shoulder. He's got a beard and he looks older. That's, Is that him? Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember that clip. Oh, okay, I thought that may have been him, but anyways, maybe. Like I, I can't remember the clip, but it may have been him. Yeah. Um, I'll swear back to the, the McConkey documentary for a second. <laughs> um, the one, the other thing that was really inspiring, uh, the, the backflip off the cliff was really big for me. The rockering thing was really big for me. But the other thing was that when he kind of like, he wasn't limited to skiing anymore. It was like he had achieved everything he wanted to do with skiing and then he started doing the base jumping stuff that was really cool for me to it was kind of that people realizing their power that um they can achieve beyond what they thought i don't not getting stuck you know 
It would be the equivalent yeah, yeah. of like um, halfy. Uh, it's really hard to explain in rollerblading terms. I haven't really figured it out, but uh, you posted that video once of someone, I think, skydiving with a wingsuit and then just landing on the ground with no parachute, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yep. That it's it's not out of the question for someone to put on skates and like land in a hill bomb from a wingsuit, but there's nobody in skating that would do that. Like I don't, I know Haffy wouldn't do that, but it's it's interesting to think that skating could have maybe had that, um, but doesn't, and I don't think there will be anyone who does it for a long time. But it made me think about that. That why that like the wing, the roller suit man, you know the guy with the roller suit. Yeah. yeah. That that guy to rollerblading culture is like a freak, you know, and it's weird that. Um, like even the cover of uh, Transworld um, posted that that picture of uh, was it Bob Burnquist? He did like a a fifty fifty to base jump. Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, and that was like a huge argument. I remember guys that we skated with at the local park here. They didn't agree with. They thought that that was the stupidest thing that they put that on the cover. And I mean, it's that that uh, mentality exists, you know, across many different. It's weird that. There's the rules in in other activities too that, um, I, I wish that people were more open-minded that someone would do a, a wingsuit to land on skates to, I mean the shit that you could do with rollerblades really. There's a lot of possibilities, well, from the perspective of wingsuits and base jumping and stuff like that. I'll uh, I'll, I'll I'll rant for a bit and see if I can. Uh, uh, Give, give some thoughts or give some opinions on this. There was one thing that Shane said in the documentary uh, that gave me chills, and it was that something along the lines of when he put the skis on, they, they became a part of him. They became an extension of him. It was kind of similar to that, that rant that uh, Shane and Dustin Latimer did at the end of... Uh, uh, words, I think it was, yeah. where you forget that you weren't born with wheels on your feet, or I mean Shane McConkey's uh, situation. You forget that you that you can't just ski, you know, with your feet with your body. So it was obvious to me that it was a real spiritual exercise for him skiing. It wasn't that he was out there controlling the skis. He was out there just sliding and flying and being free in the best way that was available to him or the best way that he had found. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he finds the parachute, he finds the base jumping and it's like a new door has opened for him to the same destination. You know? Yes. And that is letting his spirit, letting his spirit fly and letting his spirit free. And he'd obviously reached a point with the skis where it's like, I can't go any faster on snow. I can't find any steeper mountains to ski down. I can't do any bigger jumps and not break myself. But here's this parachute where all of a sudden I can jump off like 1,000-foot cliffs. I can jump off 5,000-foot cliffs. Oh, man. There's that one shot (laughs) where... There's no... And it was amazing what him and his friend JT said was that all of a sudden 
they they started totally ignoring like the 10% of mountains in the world <laughs> looking at and started looking at the other 90% of the mountains that they'd been ignoring all this time. Oh, fuck. That part was so cool. That And I relate to that so much in skating because how often have you been with a bunch of dudes who'll drive around a town for like hours and hours and hours and maybe skate a couple of 15-minute sessions at spots? Yeah. It's like, what the f- why aren't we skating all this? Yeah. Why aren't we skating that? And that came out really well in, in your video, in Big Wheels. Like, why aren't we skating this? And oh. for you guys to be just creating tricks and creating a style that hasn't been seen either in a really long time, if not ever, and that's what they were tapping into. But at the same time, it's not like they're controlling the skis or controlling the parachute. It's actually their, their spirit and like the core of who they are that's doing these things. And that came through in spades in that McConkie documentary was that we're not honoring this guy because of how good a skier he was. We're honoring this guy because of how good of a, a person and how, how much of a free spirit that he was. And he wasn't held down or held back by the industry of skiing or the hardware of skiing or anything in skiing once he started just base jumping. None of those things were limitations for him. He would, he would find ways to soar above those. It was, it was amazing. Wow. You really summed it up well, and it reminded me of what I was trying to articulate that um, I, I get bitter about the culture around skating, but the activity, like um, how you said, he, he, the door that opened and he, he got closer to flying. I'm still trying to figure out like when I... I obsess about making rollerblading videos still. I don't know like what my next open door is going to be. I always feel like it's like a little bit closer than it has been. Like I don't know what it was. Like I I was kind of a, a drama nerd in high school that was really into hockey and loved Monty Python. Like you know there's a bunch of things that emerge through skating but I still don't know where the final destination is yet, you know? And But you, you got in that documentary, like, you got the feel that he pretty much made it to his final destination and I, kept pushing it. Yeah, I mean, uh, not to say that there wouldn't have been more, but, yeah, it's hard he, to imagine where he could have taken it to next or what was going to be next. He Did he fucking... I, I swear, I, don't, I was thinking about this today, and I was like, did he do this? I swear, didn't he go off of a cliff with skis and then did the wingsuit uh yeah like are you fucking kidding me (laughs) like he actually he was there were there were clips where i don't know if it showed the whole clip so i don't know how he went off but there were clips where he was parachuting this probably wasn't the the wingsuiting or the or the um like the big long free falls, but there were clips where he was parachuting with the skis still on and landing on the skis. Yeah, that too. A couple of clips like that, that really blew my mind because I'm like, I get the idea of skiing into a parachute jump or into a base jump, but for this guy to have enough control or to have the desire even to ride the chute with his skis still on into a skiing landing, that was pretty insane. 
Well, the twist. Oh, keep going. While we're on the subject, I know that there are a couple of. I know that there are a couple of base jumpers. That do have a kind of fantasy, I guess you'd call it, for uh, for flying a wingsuit into a landing. And I don't mean like the guy on the boxes, like that video I posted. I mean like building a big wedge ramp made out of like you know soft dirt or foam or something, and trying to like land on their feet. <laughs> yeah. Now someone's gonna do it. I, don't ask don't ask me how they're going to do it or when they're going to do it, but I'd love to give one of those guys a tap on the shoulders and be like, it's <clears throat> Hey, Tag Chris was close. Like, if you can get the angles right, rollerblades take out of the equation the fact that you're still going to be doing, what, 90 mile an hour? Yeah. 80 mile, 90 mile an hour? Yeah. Uh, nah, Tag Chris wasn't that close. <laughs> nah, he wasn't. <laughs> He wasn't. Oh, how funny is that too? In the like, from the base jumping perspective and the rollerblading culture perspective, and kind of what we're talking about, where does like where does that fit in for you? Your experience of him trying to do that. Trying to do what? Jump off the Eiffel Tower. Like uh, like it's kind of related to what we were talking about. I mean, oh, okay. he, um, and the Superman thing. I. Is it? Well, Anyways, go ahead. How how do you feel about that? Is did or did we talk about this already? I can't remember. I, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the question, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can talk about it a little bit. Um, I didn't object to the things that Tag was trying to do. Uh, I objected to the fact that he didn't do them, and yet still got up and took a victory lap. Like he was a champion. That's the part that I objected to. Yeah. I I had no qualms that he was doing like a Superman front flip. You know, I don't care that he's breaking like the laws of style in yeah. rollerblading. It doesn't matter to me at all. But I mean, for people to like zoom in on the point zero five of a second where his skates are actually touching the plywood and be like, oh, see, there you go. He landed it. It's nonsense. If you don't roll away on the flat, then you didn't land it. Yeah. And, I mean, we all know this, and he should know it as well. It doesn't count. Now, I understand that you've got sponsors and a whole bunch of money was paid and you want to get the chance to do this again, so you need to make, like, good TV out of it or something. But it doesn't make good TV out of it if you're not landing the trick, if you're not doing it. Yeah. You know, that was, that was the part that I objected to. Was there so a part... I didn't really have any problem with what he was doing, with yeah. what he was trying to do, other than I really would have liked to have seen him include a bunch of the top French skaters in on the deal because I think it would only help him and help them and help rollerblading to have guys like um, uh, Roman Stefano, Alfano, uh, Roman, yeah. Abrat, have those guys out there and be like, you know, I'm Tag Chris, I'm the face you know, but check out these guys, they're crazy good too, and have them share some of the glory or share some of the limelight. It's still not going to take away from Tag. I think it's only going to make the guy more popular and more of a celebrity. Um, and it was kind of sad that wasn't done because, I mean, especially the stuff that Roman's been doing lately on a pair of skates. Amazing. 
That and yeah, and was the in the AIL edit was that Alfano with the shaved head and no shirt and like the black pants? There was like a French dude in the AIL finals edits, it, or he looked like French style. What? No, it was a guy called uh, Diego. That guy was amazing. I know. <laughs> that guy yeah. seemed like he came. Some of, the stuff he, some of the stuff he was throwing in that park was pretty impressive. So. So he's from Spain. I'm not sure. I mean, I I spoke with him a little bit, but I didn't like get to know anything. There was something about his style that really stuck out in that. But yeah. Anyways, the stuff that Roman is doing, yeah. That's that someone was, who's that not was, being tied down by by uh, the flavors. I mean, the the that that's pretty much my whole opinion on the whole Ted Chris thing is that a the guy's probably a little bit old to be presenting himself as like you know the star or the hero of any rollerblading event that's going to go down like that, especially when he could have been backed up by you know a few French skaters who would have done a great job of those things yeah great job of those things but I didn't object to you know ah oh, he's wearing pads and he's not cool and he's doing a Superman front flip like all that's good TV all that's the kind of skating that the general public want to see um, I still think that there's a big distinction between the skating that I think there should be a big distinction between the skating that you show to the general public as a means to Get your get your your voice out there and get your uh, you know what you can do seen on the on the grand stage, and then the kind of skating that people who become skaters are really going to appreciate. I mean, you know, there was a time when people would uh, you know talk down about Aaron Feinberg, like oh, you know, he wears a helmet, and he's just a comp skater, and uh, you know, he doesn't have whatever. And yet, like most most of the people that I have run into here in the U.S., they probably started skating because they got to see Aaron Feinberg do a backflip on the X Games, you know. And it wasn't until they became skaters that they really realized, oh, I don't like Aaron Feinberg anymore. He's not cool. I want to see, you know, I want to see uh, Dustin Latimer skate. I want to see Alex Broskow skate. I want to see all the guys that aren't in the contests who have style and who are real street skaters. I want to see their stuff now. But to get there, they had to see the stuff that you show to the mainstream, the stuff that you show to the general public. And we really don't have anything like that other than what Chris Haffey's doing in, uh, in the Nitro Circus at the moment. We don't have anything that's going to go out there and hook those kids who don't know about rollerblading yet, and it's not until they see something like that that they're going to be like, oh, I need a pair of those. I want to do that. And then they can find out about Broscow, and then they can find out about, uh, you know, the, the the core stuff. But they're never going to find out about that core stuff if they're not introduced to it through through the television, through a newspaper, through magazines, stuff like that. So... For a long time, we've been we've been shunning that. We haven't been we haven't been giving outsiders any chance to become rollerbladers. Which is why, yeah, that article still I really like, like. Mainstream people. I'm talking people like Chris Haffey and like Alex Broskow before they knew about rollerblading. 
You know, it would be great to speak with a couple of those guys and and say to them, how did you how did you learn about rollerblading? How did you first experience what this was? That for example, um, uh, it was nineteen eighty eight, and the World's Fair was in Brisbane, and. At the World's Fair, there was the USA Pavilion, and the theme of the USA Pavilion was sports. So you would go in there and see a whole bunch of like Olympic runners and Michael Jordan and all the American sporting heroes. Well, they had a few guys there, like a demo team on rollerblades. Um, don't ask me who it was. I have no idea. Probably like Alan Varno and uh, uh, people, you know, maybe just before Chris Edwards' time. I don't even think Action Jackson was there, but, uh, uh, you know, kind of clean-cut, preppy, athletic dudes on rollerblades, you know, wearing the little short fluoro shorts and the blade gear pads and whatever else, wearing flyaway helmets. (laughs) (laughs) Just little, like, two-panel-wide, six-foot quarter pipe that they stuffed over in the background. And in between doing, you know, dance moves and, you know, doing ice skating maneuvers on rollerblades, these dudes would go over and hit the quarter pipe over in the corner. And they were doing like ho-hos and stuff like that. That was how I first experienced rollerblading. And I didn't even start doing it for another four years, but I knew about it in 88. I didn't think about it as being something that would become, you know, an activity I would do or any kind of like, you know, sport or following with a whole bunch of people, it looked more like a novelty than anything. And at the time it probably was treated like a novelty. And but at least it was in my head already that guys were gonna hit quarter pipe ramps on a on a pair of rollerblades. And at the time I was probably a, a BMX rider more than anything. So the way that I related to the fact that they were hitting a quarter pipe was that I had seen like, you know, uh, AFA contests where dudes like uh, Dennis McCoy and uh, uh, Matt Hoffman and um, the more like the more old school BMX guys, maybe like Jay Meyer or Ron Wilkerson or someone hitting a quarter pipe. So that story is always really important to ask everybody. It's always so fucking interesting for me to listen to how people first got into skating. Yeah. A lot of the times, it's nothing. It's not. Uh, aggressive skating there was Cody Sanders podcast that one was really funny that was the first time I had ever, I had ever heard anybody that got into skating from the movie Brink <laughs> and then it's like it it just relates to what you said you know Yeah, there's it's, gotta be something it doesn't matter how lame Brink is if it's the thing that makes you aware that rollerblading exists and you see it and some part of you connects with it it doesn't matter how lame it was. Once you're once you're hooked, you're hooked, you know? Yeah. So true. I remember the first time I, it was, uh, I saw someone playing roller hockey. And uh, I didn't really care too much about the stick, and I was a hockey player at the time. It was just the fact that you could skate around on pavement. And it <laughs> was, it, there was no demo or anything. Then I saw Hoax 2. And uh, I think it was up at Whistler. There was a little skate park, and there was dudes that could grind rails and do handstands on quarter pipes and stuff. And it was at the they had an inline skate shop there, an actual inline skate shop. And I bought Hoax too, and then it was all over. 
it's there's a lot there the introduction of it as skating around first um is still really important i think and we there's that's missing but well while we're on that subject and before i forget um i live really close to this uh this woodward at tahoe now it's like 30 minutes 45 minutes away um so I go up there, you know, I want to skate around, try out the place. I actually was under the impression that they didn't even let rollerbladers skate there. But uh, but turns out they do. So I'm, I've started skating there. Um, boy, it's a lot of fun being back on skate light and being back on ramps that are built by uh, <laughs> by guys like Nate Wessel. Um, but I'm, I'm skating there and there's a guy who manages the place who is uh, a real serious free skier, like not not a professional whose name you'd know, but but skiing at pretty much the same level. I've seen some of his, some of his edits, and they're uh, incredibly good. And the really interesting thing for me is it's a guy who his name's Jamie. He's a guy who's a skier who has no interest at all in rollerblading or being a rollerblader, except for the fact that now that he is at Woodward Tahoe and he's managing the place and they've got these, you know, big ramps into into foam pits. He looks at rollerblades as, well, here's a way for me to practice skiing tricks in this place where I work. You know, I'm going to be here eight hours, ten hours a day. I might as well put a pair of rollerblades on and practice skiing tricks. And it's amazing just talking with him and just, like, sharing different perspectives on things with him that – He's a skier who's come to rollerblading like the the most unusual, unexpected way possible. And I'm a rollerblader who's, I guess, trying to work my way towards skiing in the weirdest way possible as well. <laughs> that is really it's, funny. Because I don't care. I don't care at all about skiing. I don't want to be a skier. I just want to see the same kind of diversity and the same kind of breadth and possibility in skating that skiing has and I had this kind of Oppenheimer moment a couple of weeks ago where I've got my prototype and and it's working to the point where I can actually put them on and ride them and know that I'm not going to die uh, and you know really start dialing in you know the variables and the design but I have this Oppenheimer moment where I realize oh shit I don't know the first fucking thing about skiing. How am I going to make these handle like a ski and act like a ski and work like a ski when I don't know how to ski and I've never actually <laughs> learned how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's why you're so at they, this new place in your journey. They work, but they're not skates and they're not skis. It's this, you know... It's this bastard creature that's somewhere in between, and I don't even know where in between. I don't know which side it's closer to or anything. This is way too intriguing now. You can't... <laughs> because, okay. Uh, let, can you answer a question? Okay, so the the types of skating that we're doing a little bit on these rockered skates that are faster and more responsive, um, uh-huh. are there... Can we do these types of things on this prototype? 
Well, I mean, the action of skating and the action of skiing are very different. Uh, don't think about cross-country skiing for a minute, okay? Okay. Because cross-country cross skiing is really close to skating. Yeah, it is. You've got your feet pointed out like a duck and you're taking strides and they're sliding. And in what I'm saying about the action of skiing, I guess you want to call it downhill skiing or alpine skiing or something like that where you're not taking strides, your feet are just planted shoulder width apart thereabouts. And you're just carving, you're just edging. Yeah. Now, I know that you can somewhat do that on rollerblades, but, I mean, any skier will tell you that it's not skiing, it's not the same, it's not, you know. I know Rollerblade and probably a couple of other companies tried to market the concept of putting skiers on rollerblades and putting poles in their hands and having them go down hill and, you know, dodge flags and whatever else. It obviously didn't work because I don't see anyone doing that. Oh, two, two quick uh, points on top of that, that I brought this up. Um, another really good part of the McConkie movie that I need to bring up again <laughs> was uh, when he saw Blizzard of Oz, the yeah. Greg Stump film which was kind of a big influence. I'm pretty sure, not that I'll ever get to talk to the T-Bone guys, I'm pretty sure that was a, Greg Stump was a big influence on T-Bone films. I know, okay. Um, and that, the movie opened up with a shot of people uh, bombing like over the camera and landing on a hill on rollerblades. And I'm, I swear, it's Blizzard of Oz starts with rollerblading. And that's I, I why... Um, I'll try and find it online and send it to you. But and then there's a there's a shot of of McConkie going off of a cliff on rollerblades when rollerblades would have been popular into a lake that oh. I thought was funny because rollerblading came off as novelty even in that in that uh, in that documentary. So oh. that's just a side note that the well, the actual the stride and the the way that skiers view rollerblading is still a very it's novelty. All right, well, hang on a second, because I, 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 I want to talk about this, especially in relation to the Shane McConkie documentary. Um, did you, you saw that clip that I posted on your wall, right? Yeah. Okay. Same thing. Right. So Shane McConkie, he's got this alter ego that is ridiculing and satirizing and making fun of just the concept and the idea of being a pro skier. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing to watch. You mentioned him seeing Blizzard of Oz. I think that affected him in a really huge way because he obviously had a love-hate relationship with the industry and the structure and the machine of skiing that he was trying to come up in. They mentioned him being at school in Vermont and then being in Colorado. And he's obviously trying to make it as a professional skier, but he's trying to make it by playing by the rules. You know, you've got to be a racer, you've got to go around these flags, you've got to be fast. Uh, there's all sorts of, like, clicks and there's all sorts of, you know, faux pas that if you if you do them, you're, you're out of contention, you're not considered anymore. And he obviously loved skiing while hating all of those rules and all of that structure. And that's what really changed for him when he saw Blizzard of Oz was holy shit, we can just totally get rid of the structure and do whatever we want on skis and 
still be a professional, still not work a real job, still get a paycheck. Um, blue is mine. And yet he develops this alter ego in the process where he's making fun of people who are trying to bring that structure and bring that that pressure and all of those rules into the concept of like, you know, free skiing or big mountain skiing or whatever you want to call it. Every kind of skiing that he was doing that wasn't organized racing or organized moguls or whatever. He was trying to find ways to poke fun at them. What I realized watching this documentary with all the people at school was when this guy puts rollerblades on or puts snow blades on or, you know, whatever, mocks, mocks the industry and the establishment, he's doing it in a lighthearted way. He's doing it in a way where he's trying to make people not take it so seriously. Absolutely. And it's the absolute worst way to respond to that lightheartedness by being serious about it. Oh, oh, he's mocking rollerblading. Oh, if he saw a happy section, he wouldn't say that. We go bigger than anyone. Uh, that guy's a jerk. He doesn't know anything. <laughs> They're just going to laugh at you even harder because you're supposed to be laughing at yourself and they're laughing at themselves. He's not making fun of rollerbladers. He's making fun of skiers. Yeah. He's fun of pro skiers that take themselves too seriously. And it's amazing how any attempt you make at making fun or poking fun at pro rollerbladers oh man oh it's met with the same like serious <laughs> solid hatred right oh how dare you say that he's he's the top pro we love him he's way better than anyone's ever gonna be it's like like take a pill Have oh some man I read. I I try Just like take dude's haircut and his shirt and his pants. Like it's laughable. I want you to be laughing at him. Don't take it so seriously. But it was a real eye opener to see that that they loved it so much. Everyone that knew him personally couldn't have been having a better time when he would break into character as you know saucer boy and just be mocking and poking fun at anyone who took the concept of uh, putting on a pair of skis and jumping off cliffs, you know, too seriously. That They did a really good job of capturing <laughs> that too. Scientists, you What's know, that? Or curing cancer or something <laughs> like that. And you're, you've got skis on your feet and you're sliding down a mountain, you know. Yeah. It's, it's ludicrous. Enjoy yeah. it. Enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, they did a good job of saying, stating that too in the documentary that to really know the importance of that character, you have to be a skier. But I, I love that they included it in the film because it was important in the story of his life. And I, I really want to experience that event that they're going to have at Squaw Valley because anywhere else, I think people might take it the wrong way and might understand it. But at Squaw, it's probably going to be hilarious. It's probably going to be the time of my life. Oh man, rollerblading needs something like that. Getting out there on a pair of snowblades and just losing it, you know, just letting it all go. <laughs> and and you know, part of me feels like I already have let it go, but it's it's not letting it go. I've rejected it, but it's kind of still there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. 
the 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 relics of it, the the memories of it. Yeah. Still there. Yeah. I, I wish I I wish I'd never picked it up. And I don't mean rollerblading, I mean that that identity and that attitude and that culture. I wish I'd never picked it up. It's really hard to but shake skate, it. I mean, I've I've got more pairs of skates right now than I've had in my whole life. Um <laughs> and I mean, the number of times that I change skates, like, you know, per week, the number of different pairs that I have on, the number of different places and different ways that I go on skate, I I couldn't be having more fun. Yeah. I, re- I really am more free on skates than I've ever been. Right There's now. something to that, that um, the 20-year-old version of me would have been closed-minded to. That It's so fun to try out different skates. It's so yeah, fun. It's one of the rules, man. You know, I mean, Senate made it clear that was one of the rules. We're not hockey players. We're not rec skaters. We're not uh, rolling down the bike path in spandex skaters. We're aggressive skaters. So, serious. It became part of the identity. You had to reject all those other uh, disciplines, all those other genres. Oh, and it still exists today. I think everyone's pretty much aware that Alex Broskow played a lot of hockey when he was younger. And I guess you can see it in his style. You know, he has a very strong, very powerful, controlled style. And yet, you'll never see any move of him on skates that in any way resembles hockey or ice skating in an edit. You'll never see that stuff. No, only his uh, um, every time his older sections. What's that? It'll get cut out every time because it breaks the rules. Oh yeah, because there's a lot of cruising right now on skates. Where you know when in those KFC sections when they would show him charging, like skating towards stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't really see that as much anymore. Like he keeps his arms a little bit lower now, and there's more just like cruising, riding his skates rather than that. Okay. That's and, a really interesting point, by the way. It's not criticizing that. If anything, it's more a criticism of the editing than of the skating. Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. Oh, just certain rules. And one of those rules is that, oh, we can't put anything in the video that makes him look like anything but an aggressive skating. The, the, <laughs> the thing that they made, made me think of um, your prototype again, though, is uh, there are points, at Leon more specifically than either of us, where Leon, he's not striding in the video. He's almost like pushing with his heels. Yeah. Um, I really liked watching that. He's, he's almost using it as a means to, to, to pump and to develop some speed on flat ground. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something... I know about being heel-oriented because I've learned how to do a similar thing in K2s. Um, I can... I mean, I'm just talking regular strides on flat ground. I can do regular strides on flat ground in such a way where you weight the heels as much or more than the toes and you hardly ever need to rotate your wheels. Whereas the style of skating that I developed when I was younger and when I was growing up, front wheels would always cone way faster than the back. Yeah. Yeah, my third wheel is the first to go lately. And I think the heel lift has a lot to do with that, but also it took me a while to actually develop like a K2 style of striding based on the flatter heels. And I think I mentioned to you those shadows I have with the free skate frames on them, I took the rubber heel out altogether because I, I felt like they were too high. I wanted to be a bit lower at the back. Yeah. And, and uh, you prefer that still? 
Like, of all the skates that you've been trying, do any of your skates have a raised heel? There are some of them that do, and I can switch back and forth, and it's not too much of a problem. But, I mean, if I had the choice, yeah, flat heel and everything. Interesting. So let's... I I can't really do it in the Solomons because if you take the rubber heel out, there's like this plastic post there. That yeah, I remember that thing. Yeah. And even if you get rid of that post, the bottom of the shell is kind of a weird shape. It's you're, you're changing the, you're kind of changing the biomechanics. You know what I mean? Like your ankle is not going to line up with the, with the cuff hinge anymore. And, um, it just, it's going to feel weird. So, haven't done it with them. Keep, keep the rubber heels and the raised heels and the Solomons. Makes me feel that that's the way the skate was engineered, though. So that's good. I have I have one last question before we go because we're gonna round it out at two hours here. Unless there's any last topic you want to talk about before. Yeah, we go. there is. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Everyone listening's like, "Fuck, I'm gonna be up all night." <laughs> what do we have? Uh, did you have anything more, or? Um, no, I had one question just about your prototype that you probably couldn't answer. Yeah. Um, that can you? Yeah. Okay. How you're saying it's not a ski and it's not a skate. Um. So you can you get speed on flat ground with this prototype? Well, I mean. I think I've said this a whole lot before, but I'll say it again now. If there's any one thing that you really need to know, it's that what I have designed isn't that impressive on its own, other than the fact that it removes a lot of variable, it removes a lot of limits from skate design. At the moment, there's a whole bunch of variables when designing a skate that you can't take beyond certain limits before the skate just doesn't work anymore. Um, and the perfect example is anyone who's like a size 12 or a size 13 who's trying to skate any rocker. Right? Those guys' skates just do not work. <laughs> now, if you're, a, if you're a 6 or a 7 and you're skating any rocker on really short frames, you know, you can get away with it. Yeah, definitely. But if you're a size 13 and you're trying to skate like 56 anti, you're you're done. The skate does not work. It doesn't function properly. So we've reached a limit there somewhere where the the skate stops working because you can't take the variables as far as you want them. You've crossed certain limits. Yeah. Um, so having said that, the prototype that I have now is actually the second prototype built around my design. The first one was much more conventional, much more... Uh, standard aggressive skate. Uh, I actually took it out to a revolution Thursday night skate and no one even noticed. <laughs> no one no one noticed what I was doing on the skate or how I was doing it, but I noticed. So it was pretty rough anyway. That one was Jimmy rigged out of parts that <clears throat> were definitely, definitely weren't made to work together, but I got them to work together just enough to prove that the idea worked. Um, so this second prototype's a little different. It doesn't look like a conventional uh, aggressive skate. It doesn't look like a conventional rollerblade. Um, and it's a big gray area at the moment as to 
how it does work or what it actually does do. And that's, that's the fun of it. That's the, the, the learning part of it is that you remember those first few sessions where you put a pair of roller blades on and you had no idea how to make them work? Um, remember? You had no idea how to go backwards or how to turn around or anything. Oh, yeah, some of the... Oh, how do I stop? How do I stop? Compared to ice skating, yeah. yeah. And you probably remember how much fun it was. Well, me on the prototype is like that, man. I've, I've got to learn all over again how to stand up on these things, how to make these things go around corners, how to stop. Can I turn around? Can I jump? <laughs> wow. So it's a lot of fun, even though you look like a huge jerk <laughs> with them on. It's a wow. lot of fun. That's very intriguing. And the side this, cut thing still gets me. I don't know if that's great. Bad. This is a great town for doing it. This is a great place for doing it. I wanted Monterey to be more like this. Uh, so I'm very, very happy with where I am now. Uh, making it work, yeah. Trying to make it work. Damn. I want to try. What What's the the final thing that does that transition into the final thing at all, or was that the final thing? Um, yeah, I guess that's I guess that's it. Is that if, it? If we drag it on, like I, I'm just going to be trying to trying to make points that have probably already been made thus far. So, well, yeah, you can be a regular guest as well. There was a, you were requested again. And Frank was requested again, and Kevin's requested again. Both Kevin's actually. So, this is your, is this it your third? It takes a while. It's something more to say, I guess. What? <laughs> it takes a while for me to have something more to say that hasn't been said before, one way or another. <laughs> I feel like it's always. Uh, it doesn't matter who the guest is. There's like 45 minutes to an hour where it, it, there's just something that hits, you know? Because uh-huh. like, uh, for this one, it was the to start talking about that McConkie documentary, there's just so many things in there that apply to skating for me and and where it's at right now. So seeing like seeing it beyond beyond the horizons or beyond the, the limitations. Oh, that's the last thing I wanted to say. Okay. Okay. Uh, this this is a, a pretty good this is a pretty good experiment that everyone listening can do. To give you an idea of the, the, the feeling I had when I left the McConkie documentary, have you got a piece of paper in front of you? Yeah. Okay, get a piece of paper and a pen. Wait, now, yeah. You ready? Okay. Yeah. Now, from one end of the piece of paper to the other, I want you to draw uh, a line that's not a straight line. It can be squiggly, it can be curvy, you can do. Uh, you can do loop-de-doos. Yeah. But draw a line from one end to the other that's just like a free form, any way you want it to be line. Yeah. Okay. Now, anywhere on that line, I want you to draw a line parallel to it that's about an inch long. Parallel to the same design? Yeah. It's got to be parallel, so it's going to follow the same curvature and the same design. Yeah. That for that one inch anywhere on the paper. Yeah. Okay. So this is the feeling that I left this documentary with. The the line that goes from one end to the other is skiing. Right? Yeah. It's their industry, it's their culture, it's their community. And the line that's one inch long and that's parallel to it is rollerblading. Now, 
I go to this documentary as a rollerblader, right? So I take with me the one-inch line, and I'm looking at skiing, and I'm trying to find similarities between skiing and rollerblading from my perspective. From that perspective, everything that you can see looks exactly the same. Oh, they're grabbing like us. They're spinning like us. Uh, you know, they they skate. They they use half pipes like us. They do jumps like us. They've got baggy pants like us. You know, they listen to hip hop like us. Everything that you can see is the same because you're a rollerblader and you can only see based on what you know. Your perspective is limited. And I think that at this documentary and amongst this community of people was probably the first time that I got to see just how broad and just how much diversity their activity and their community has. And I understand why they look at rollerblading the way they do. When we look at them, all we see is the similarities, and when they look at us, all they see is the limitations. Damn. All they see are the sections. All they see are the sections of the line where they are and where their perspective is, and we're not there. Wow, that's a really good point. And and I'm not saying that we need to go and copy skiing. No, no, no. It's a. I'm not saying that our line needs to be parallel with theirs no. the whole way. What I'm saying is we need to make our line longer and we need to take it in any direction we want. We need to do, you know, make squiggles anywhere, make a turn, make some curves, draw it in any shape you want, but but stretch it out, make it bigger, make it broader, make it greater, expand it instead of contracting it and concentrating it and refining it and focusing on these tiny little elements that no one cares about. Outside of a few thousand people in the world, no one cares where your elbows are and where your arms are when you land a trick. <laughs> no one cares that when you did, you know, the true fish brain, you, you like did a rocket kick on the way off or something like that. There's, there's 1,500 people in the world that care, and those people aren't even going to give you a dollar, let alone anyone else. Right? They're not going to give you a kind word. It, it's so small, like we're, we're invisible. It's like, it's like they don't even exist. Which? They're, they're, they're not ridiculing us. They, they can't even see us. They can't even see who we are and what we're capable of. And I just... I just I want to see that expanded. That's a really good point. <laughs> and and again, it relates to where K2 was going when they're at their peak. So, and and I've got to say, I think that K2 and Solomon reluctantly turned away from rollerblading because from their skiing backgrounds and their skiing foundations, they really could see a lot of potential for it. But they just got to a point where they realized that potential wasn't going to be met. Oh, and they did a fucking amazing job uh, picking their... It cost costing you know, what? Oh, it yeah. Them too much to try and see that potential realized. Yeah. They yeah. kept money in and not seeing returns. And yeah. they just got to a point where they were like, this is a business. We've got to 
we've got to make cuts and there's no question as to where that cut's going to be made first. Yeah, be, absolutely. Because those guys aren't, they're not rising to the challenge. They're not, they're not getting it done. It's, it's but you know, look at, few were, but it just wasn't enough. It wasn't making a difference. Look at people um, still skating those skates, though, and look at the legacy of the people that that they chose for their riders. Uh, yeah. I mean, they both had it down. Yeah. No, I'm serious. I mean, I, I couldn't be any bigger a fan of the skaters that, are, that were on K2 in the late 90s. Their team was stacked. I mean, I, um, I should actually just scan a lot of that old stuff. That pretty much all of their ads, up to the kind of metamorphosis era, when they were just doing the half page, and it was for that video that yeah. never came out, there the ad where it would just be like the white border with a yeah. photo and the K2 logo. Uh huh. Yep. Amazing. And then if there's if you watch the documentary about K2, it's like uh, what they did with skiing just it worked. They were doing the same thing with skating, and nobody's even come close. If you, can, if you can remember those ads and you can remember the one where um, uh, Ryan Dawes did that like 6.30 transfer on yes. an Yes. It's not possible. I mean, I've, I've been there. I've seen the ramps. I've seen the, how tiny the wedge he needed to land on and how close he was to like a rail and a wedge and either clipping the 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 top or landing flat bottom it's not possible it's insane and he did all of this off like a two and a half foot tranny that was like you know 16 feet (laughs) 16 feet away from where he landed and maybe like six feet higher and he probably got like four or five feet above that thing (laughs) oh fuck just the distance and spun it and it's just not possible i got a um craziest off-axis spinning transfer you've ever seen uh the photo was amazing and you got i don't know if the park's still there it's in like grand prairie texas you go there and you look at the ramps and it's it's not possible man and uh yeah those ads were always so separate from the rest of the magazine i mean once in a while you would feel the greatness (laughs) in other but it felt it felt like that was something special every time you would open up the magazine i certainly think that k2 had made a decision to not present themselves in the, with the same image and the same kind of branding that, you know, that Senate was. They weren't going after that, like, punk, loud, rude, fuck the world kind of attitude, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily clean cut and preppy, but it was more so than, than what a whole bunch of other companies in rollerblading were doing at the time. You know, I mean, it was it was early enough in the '90s. A lot of companies were kind of going after a, a grungy look and attitude and you know, whatever. It's a word that doesn't make any sense today. It probably made a lot more sense. But um, but yeah, the way they presented themselves, it, it was obvious they were going for a more professional image for skating and a more respectable image for skating, without taking away from any of the you know of how crazy and incredible the skaters were but it, it wasn't catching on at the time you know like there were a lot of uh there were a lot of skaters that loved the skates but the, the image that k2 was presenting i don't think 
was popular. It was it was far ahead of its time. It was trying to, and it was also mature because of probably the skiing history behind the company too. Yeah, and I guess I guess they had a pretty grand vision, you know, for what rollerblading could be themselves, and most of the companies that you know were popular were most popular in the industry were working against that because because they were selling to fake boarders, you know, they were selling to to kids that wanted to be skateboarders on rollerbladers and still do. Yep. And that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we'll have to save the prophecy for another podcast. Yeah, we didn't even get to the prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> well that that's a good end note then. Um well thank you again, Jacob. Yeah, and, thanks, uh, Joe. Haven't spoken to you in a while, mate, and uh, I'm um, feel like I'm in a, a, a different place now as far as making progress and getting things done in skating. So, uh, hey, me too. It's been good. Yeah, well, I, I feel like I'm in a similar place too. I'm almost in a new place. One more, one or two more videos, and I might the door might open. Yeah, I don't know well, what it's gonna be, but we'll see. Take take a bow for this one first, man. Seriously. No, <laughs> it's gonna it's it, it's gonna grow on people, and it has it has already. You know, I mean, there's people that have been blown away from from watching it the first few times. I know I have been, but um, boy, there's still a whole bunch of people that aren't getting it. Well, <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I I feel like uh, it's just scratching the surface, but um, there's, still, there's still a whole bunch of people out there who have got their clipboards in front of them. <laughs> They've got their clipboards and like the red pen is is running out and the green pen hasn't even been opened, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, keeping I, score, bro. You ain't winning. <laughs> at, with uh, with making videos now and edits and things, I always look at the long, long, long term. I always look at how they're all going to fit together in 10 years time or so because there's just so much shit that goes up that the way even people experience things online these days... It's hard to even trust them to fully uh, um, experience it properly. So I'm always I'm confident that it sometimes could take three years for someone that hates the video to maybe like the video in the future, <laughs> like actually see it. Yeah, but I remember a bunch of people felt that way about Under the Influence when Drew Bacharach did the Daily Bread video. Oh yeah, and it's a classic. A whole bunch of people were not getting that for the longest time. Yeah, USD um, Tour video was another one. Have you seen a, a, a television show, it's like a comedy uh, duo called Mr. Show? I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, we, we watch that all okay. the time, actually. All right. Uh, I, I only saw a couple of them, but I loved the hate mail section. Oh, fuck. Which one is that one? Do you remember those? No. They read it. It was it. Where they'd be like, okay, and now, and now on Mr. Show, it's time for us to open the hate mail bag. <laughs> and they would open the pack that was apparently full of hate mail, and it would always be empty. And be like, "Fuck, we're gonna have to like we're gonna have to step it up a notch. We're gonna have to take it to the next level." And they would just pick every minority and like every group you could imagine, and just discriminate against them in the most <laughs> in the most over the top, ludicrous way possible, so that you knew it was comedy. It was hilarious. 
Oh, that's I'm gonna, great. I'm gonna, post one, I'm gonna find one and post it on your wall just so you get it. Yeah, definitely. The way that I've just described it, it probably isn't coming across as funny. No, no, no. <laughs> I know that it would be good because I'm a big fan of Mr. Show. And that's something that got cancelled after three or four seasons that has a huge life now online. Yeah, so, nice. Yeah, I guess people weren't getting it. <laughs> no, not that I'm saying that, that I'm going to have a, that Big Wheels will have a huge life in ten years. But if it gets uh, a we'll couple see. people to maybe try the skates, maybe. And but, hey, a big thing, my last point about uh, that the withdrawal period is something that needs to be uh, known for anybody thinking of trying those skates. You think you're making the wrong choice for the first while. And then it's it's uh, it's called <laughs> flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. I That's remember cool. the first time I put those five wheelers on that I've got. Um, yeah. It was like that bit in uh, Anchorman where he jumps into the bear pit. Here I am. Here I am pointing these five wheel skates down this steep hill. And I'm like, I immediately regret this decision. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good thing, though. Yeah. We need more of it. It makes, it makes skating fun again, like every part of it. If you, can, if you can go beyond the limit on skates in any direction, even if it's a direction you don't care about, it makes every part of being on skates more fun. Absolutely. Like go and, go and, go and bomb some hills, and your next mini ramp session, you'll have more fun. Fuck, that's so true. Well, put a, put a pair of brakes on skates. I'm talking both sides, and go find like the steepest hill in town. <laughs> and, serious. And yeah, you will skate better. Actually, uh, when I went back to my trick skates, my tricks were better from skating these other skates all the time. One feeds that's, into the other, so that's real nice. <laughs> so that's a good endpoint. Two seventeen. That's good. Cool. Well, have a good night, and thanks for taking time to chat. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks, man. And uh, we'll do it again soon. See ya. Later.